I'm Ariane Elfant, and this is Death the Podcast. Death may be defined as the destruction or permanent end of something. At Death the Podcast, we are looking closely at what happens when something ends. We listen, learn about, and discuss the stories that surround the subject of death. These stories bring up much more than feelings of fear and sadness. They offer opportunities for connection, for hope, and sometimes even for humor. Ultimately, if we are open to exploring death, we create greater potential to experience life. My guest today is certified life cycle celebrant Holly Pruitt. Holly is also a certified thanatologist. Holly helps individuals and families design ceremonies to commemorate beginnings, endings, and everything in between. She has helped her clients welcome new family members, honor lifelong commitments to one another, and say meaningful goodbyes to careers, marriages, and deceased loved ones. Holly is here now to talk with us about her role in providing those she serves with the gift of meaningful remembrance. Welcome, Holly. Thank you so much. When you describe to people what you what you do, how do you feel like that's typically perceived? Well, I, it's funny because I have, you mentioned my various certifications. They're all things that nobody's heard of. In fact, sometimes <laughs> even the title of celebrant, people will say, why are you telling me you're celibate? So I have <laughs> celebrant and um some of the the uh the folks that i trained with in the home funeral work uh, through final passages in sebastopol they rightly refer to themselves as pioneers they're pioneers in terms of, <laughs> of how we reclaim the way that we die and so uh i think the range of response is from people who think it's really weird <laughs> and why are you talking about death and dying and who would want to have anything to do with that. And it's a turnoff or, um, you know, we live in a very ceremonially averse culture and that's how I grew up too. And so it maybe feels a little too woo woo or a little too soft or strange. And then there are other people who are very curious or it, uh, you know, they'll find their way onto my website and they'll say, you're exactly what I've been looking for, even though I didn't even know what I was looking for. The first funeral or memorial that I put together was for my own dad. He died 15 years ago after a year and a half of um, living with terminal illness. And he was one of the many people who says, I, I don't want a funeral. And um, after his lengthy illness, I think it was hard for my stepmother to consider taking on one more thing. And so six months had gone by and I realized that I really needed to do something to mark the transition of uh, my father no longer being a living presence in my life. And so for me, that was that was six months later. It was sort of the soonest that I could figure out what it was that I needed and how to honor him um, since there wasn't a congregation to rely on or uh, other traditional practices to follow. And then once I started talking about uh, having these kind of deferred uh, ceremonies, I started to hear other stories. Someone told me about the funeral that she put together for her father eight years after he died. And then I was contacted by a woman whose mother had died 18 years ago. And she said that uh, the original funeral had been like a bad Seinfeld episode. She said it was really good for nothing more than a funny story to tell at a party. And so we did a redo, a redo basically 18 years later. And the most extreme example probably was when 
I was called upon by our um, our local regional government that manages the the state zoo, and it's on the property that originally was the county poor farm in the 19th century when Portland was just being settled. And in the process of some new construction at the zoo, they inadvertently exhumed some human remains. And after all the due diligence with the archaeologists and the tribes and the state historic society, they were ready to reinter the remains of what turned out to be eight individuals. And so I actually assisted the archaeologists and the zoo personnel and the construction crew and everybody else who'd been so involved in coming upon these lives from the past and giving them a respectful reburial. So it's become actually one of my mottos that it's never too late to honor the deaths um, of those whose lives preceded us. It's never too late to incorporate bereavement and remembrance practices. What is your role involved? Do you help people design what this what this experience will look like? Do you? I, it sounds like you're there. I'll, you're there as a facilitator. Walk me through a little bit, kind of of what people ask of you and what you're asking of yourself. It's a combination of of being a creative partner, where I really see them as being uh, the primary um, uh, the the primary authors of this experience. It's about fostering as much engagement as possible, about really trying to either build on or help to initiate a culture of remembrance in their own family or their own community. And um, so in some ways, I'm, I'm a creative partner where I'm helping to surface their ideas and, and bringing other resources and ideas to the table in response to um, some of their own instincts that they might not have a specific idea uh, that follows that. In other ways, I'm really a, a project manager, and this is part of my background in the nonprofit community. I help to identify what the goal is, what needs to be honored, witnessed, released, mourned, remembered. Uh, uh, transformed, uh, grieved, uh, celebrated. And uh, so so what is the experience that we're seeking to foster or to catalyze or to enhance? And then what are the different elements um, that will contribute to that? And then what's the process of putting that together that will, again, help to strengthen the, the community or the system or the, the individual process um, that this person is going through? And then I'm kind of an advocate for moving it forward because we're talking about largely DIY do-it-yourself ceremonies where you might need to figure out the venue and the program and if there's going to be food and, um, you know, uh, it can be overwhelming for some folks, uh, especially if they don't have a lot of community resources. And so um, I help them to figure out strategies to whether it's about keeping it simple or whether it's about um, bringing in more resources uh, to help them. And so I help establish the timeline and what the next steps are and um, and keep the whole process on track. And then lastly, uh, I generally I officiate the ceremonies myself unless they have somebody else that they want uh, to have do that. Sometimes I work with people long distance on the creative pieces and I'm not actually present for the, the ceremony or the ritual itself. And then lastly, I, I support incorporation of the experience by being available for kind of a debrief um, in some weeks or months afterwards. It's often a very intimate and um, intense 
intense and profound experience to go through together. And so to allow a little bit of time to elapse and then be able to look back on it and to reflect on um, what the what the consequences have been, what the impacts have been of providing the kind of time and intentionality for the ceremony. There must be a lot about this that's impactful for people after the fact. And, yes. And how you're yeah. connected with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mentioned the idea of a, a culture of remembrance. I think we largely live in very amnesiac times that are very much either about the now or about the future. And um, we don't have a lot of really strong connections uh, to our past. And we also don't have a very strongly developed capacity for um, for grief as a skill. Um, you know, we think of it as an emotion, but we don't have a lot of practices um, that really support how to grieve, um, especially publicly or collectively. Um, and it's kind of relegated to the private domain of a therapist's office. Um, and so, uh, that kind of reflection about the ceremony or seeing it as part of a continuum, um, of building some skills of building some practices, creating, um, a little bit of continuity, uh, in these kinds of practices so that it becomes part of the vocabulary of the family or their community. Um, I think it's really wonderful when, again, it's it's not just a one-time event, but it's something that's a touchstone that can continue to both enrich the lives going forward and also to serve the grief that's inevitably going to continue to be felt. It's really an intensive process, and it sounds like you, very important that you that you have a three-dimensional look at, at how, how it is you can be helpful and how you'll be involved and that that makes sense. That would involve a good deal of time and attention. Yeah, that's a, a great way to describe it. Thanks. Uh, one of the touchstones that I often think of is a client who said that she felt closer to her mother uh, through the process of us working together on her mother's memorial than she did during the last couple of years of her mother's life because her mother was uh, kind of lost in Alzheimer's and um, she had to focus so much on the sort of administrative management of her mother's care and well-being. And so after her mother's death, to be able to take several months to um, go through that lifetime of memories and to really evoke her mother's presence in a number of thoughtful ways was a way of her rebuilding um, her relationship to her mother. Mm-hmm. And, and for you... Um recognizing your father's death what did what did you notice about um about giving yourself the opportunity to do that. Yeah, my stepmother very kindly gave me some of my dad's possessions and gave me a a portion of his cremated remains, but um, there really wasn't a place to to sort of be in community around his death and what this meant for me also to have gone through a year and a half as one of his primary caregivers. And so I, uh, the first thing that I did was I started collecting remembrances of him that had been written to me as part of condolence notes. And my stepmother helped me to solicit these as well. So they're the type of things that might have been said had there been a funeral or a memorial and people were given the opportunity to share them in writing. And so I, as part of the the six-month commemoration, I pulled those together into booklets, and I gave my sister a copy, and I gave my stepmother a copy. And uh, subsequently, 
uh, as I went through my formal training with the Celebrant Foundation and Institute, I realized that actually my dad had never had a proper eulogy. And that what I had done six months later was really primarily a rite of passage ceremony for myself of really coming to terms with my dad's death. And while I had brought to mind some of his attributes and I had spoken to him, it was really more about my letting go, my release, my goodbye. And so by the time we approached his the 10th anniversary of his death, I had more distance and um, also had had that professional training and the, the art of eulogy writing. So uh, very wonderfully, I was able to go back to that booklet that I had made of all those remembrances. So his older sister talking about what he was like as a kid. And um, he was a doctor. I had some testimonials from some of his patients talking about um, the impact that he'd had on their lives and some of his college friends. And these memories that were captured at the time, I was able to pull together into really a, a tribute and a story of my dad as a person um, in the sort of in the center of the virtual room of all of these collected memories, and then finally delivered that eulogy 10 years later uh, in the uh, a wildlife preserve that was one of his favorite places to walk that we gathered in. And then two years after that, just very serendipitously, on the 12th anniversary of his death, I met a woman, uh, an artist, uh, Holly Swan with Ash and Earth, who works with cremated remains. And she creates these beautiful pottery keepsakes that are fired in an earthen anagama kiln that's collectively tended over the period of two or three days. And um, I had seen examples of them and they really kind of enchanted me. And so I provided her with uh, some of my dad's remains. It was actually quite uh, sort of bizarre and special that the transfer happened at a death cafe. Um, (laughs) I have for the last four years been the primary organizer of the death cafe movement in Portland where people come together and talk about whatever's on their minds about death. And so to actually transfer a little bit of my dad's cremated remains from one hand to another at a death cafe, I thought, wow, this is, this is really something. And, uh, so I now have a, a physical keepsake that really connects me to, um, to the memory of, of his physical body and have done various things with those, including, um, bestowing one onto the, the ancestor altar kept at my godson's house. And he's now the keeper of my dad's veterans flag. And that was a transfer ceremony that we did on a Memorial day, a couple of years after I'd had these stones made. So I mentioned before that sort of one of my working mottos is it's never too late. And another is really the belief that no one ceremony is going to serve all needs. And so it's not about putting all the eggs in one basket and having the one perfect memorial and and checking that off. That's done. You know, we talk a lot about closure. And I actually, um, the the Celebrant Foundation Director, Charlotte Ulette says, don't we need more opening? And I really agree with her. And so I think by adopting Um, and being open to the different kinds of rituals and um, remembrance and bereavement practices that can evolve over time, different needs will be served at different times. The pressure to feel like you get this one chance (laughs) and to do it all, um, I think that that's overwhelming, one. And then two, that uh, grief has so many different stages. One of the most common things that I hear people wanting, especially when they've got the phrase celebration of life in mind, as they say, we don't want to be sad. 
And that may be how they need to handle their grief at that particular time to say, uh, you know, and, and again, we're not used to grieving publicly. We're used to being concerned that if we display um, any emotions that are sad, that it will just be too upsetting to other people. And, and in fact, people may not uh, respond appropriately. Um, you know, I've heard from person after person who, you know, experiences the death of a spouse, let's say, and, and all of a sudden half their friends can't really deal with them anymore. It just makes them too uncomfortable. Um, so there is oftentimes that desire to, to be celebratory, to focus on, on the life, on when the person was healthy, to kind of banish the experience of, um, the person's ill health of the dying time to banish the, um, the harder feelings, the sadder feelings, the more complicated feelings. And so that's where, um, that celebration of life may, may be the celebratory piece, but are there other perhaps more private, um, rituals or ways of honoring, um, of honoring the grief that is there too, and of not banishing that, um, entirely. We need to find, um, new ways to walk through these old portals, as one of my friends said about this work. How do you know if what you've been a part of is a success? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think um, if I've if I've seen that the the needs in the situation are are well served, and that doesn't always mean that everybody's going to feel okay or good. I mean, when I think about families that are affected by suicide or um, a, a traumatic death through an accident um, or through a crime or, um, you know, a sudden and unexpected death or a death that comes at the end of a very grueling um, period of illness and caregiving, uh, there's not necessarily going to be that uh, feeling, nor is it my goal, that everything is quote-unquote okay. Um, but have, uh, through this process, uh, the family, the community, have the opportunity to be strengthened in some ways, to um, access uh, the resources of, um, of their community, of their own emotion, of um, perhaps some historic practice in their family, of feeling like they've got a little bit of a scaffolding for a way to go forward. Um, so I, I think I look at what are the ways to bless the space between us. Is that space between us somehow honored um, and strengthened? Do people have some connection to something bigger than themselves that provides them um, with a sense of their, their place in the world, their place in the cycle of life? Those are the, the marks of success that for me are the most satisfying. There, there's tremendous intimacy in what you what you do and what you observe. There is, you know, I actually have a lot of, uh, clergy in my family, all female clergy actually, and organized religion, um, was not something that was friendly to me as a child. I had some scathing experiences as unfortunately too many people have, um, with institutionalized religion. And so that wasn't the path that I followed, but I have found really the closest description for what I do to be uh, really like a secular clergy person. Do you ever encounter people who seek out your services that you feel like you cannot help? 
Uh, I have had um, a few. Uh, certainly the most customary role for an officiant for, let's say, weddings and funerals has been reduced to kind of a cookie cutter ceremony and the traditional funeral director or um, wedding planner will be helping a client in many cases focus on all of the kind of event pieces, uh, the venue and the caterer and the DJ and the, um, in the case of a funeral, the, 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 the casket and, you know, all the product that you need to buy. And um, sadly, the least amount of attention is often given to the ceremony itself to, as I said earlier, what is it that's going to be witnessed or released or mourned or remembered or sanctified um, in the case of a marriage? What is it that's being um, pledged? Uh, and what is the importance of these other people even there? And so it's not every person who wants to spend, I typically with weddings and funerals will spend 20 or 30 hours engaged with the family um, if the circumstances support that. And not everybody has the appetite for that. So most often uh, where it's not a good fit, it's really because they're looking for someone to spend maybe an hour prepping and then show up for an hour. And there are plenty of other people out there in the marketplace that can do that for them at the kind of discount rate that they're looking for. And so the people that tend to work with me are the ones that really want to invest more in in the process. What do you do with your... I mean, I imagine there's a level of attachment in in each of these experiences for you personally. Um, what's it like for you when they're when they're over? Well, I had begun by developing for myself a bit of a, a preparatory ritual, some of the steps that I would go through as I was helping to develop the ceremony and then in um, the majority of the cases where I officiate as well, preparing myself uh, to go to the day. But I realized that I didn't have much to bring myself out of it. And as you're pointing out, that has turned out to be a, a very important uh, part. So one of the pieces was to begin to offer this optional, um, you know, several week or several month afterwards chance to just touch base again and to, um, to bring that sense of coming full circle together. And um, I also have a few other practices that, uh, you know, it might involve the way that I light and blow out a candle, um, what I do with the materials that have been involved in that particular ceremony, um, and, uh, the ways that I, uh, that I think about just my own life being enriched through the knowledge of this person and then making space to meet the next person. Has there been anything that you haven't done that you want to do? In some ways, I don't have that much of a bucket list that reflects the fact I feel pretty fortunate in my life. But also, I think that this work has really kept me so much more in the present and I'm kind of a chronic planner. It's part of what makes me good at my job. I, I can help to put together those structures to make things happen. But um, I realize that nothing is nothing is taken for granted. I don't know for sure that I'll put my head down on the pillow at night. You know, I could be out this afternoon and, you know, meet, meet a bus in the wrong way. And um, that I really you know, even my plans for my own death, cremation versus natural burial, there's a lot, I think, that while I I 
want to make sure that the people in my life know what I value, that we talk about these things frequently, that I'm less attached to the specifics of what will happen um, because I know that there could be a whole range of different circumstances. And I think I I realize that I have a lot less control um, than I would like to uh, think. It certainly sounds like you, you are so helpful and... Um opening the door for other people to feel that that these moments really matter. One of the things that's been so amazing about how this path has unfolded for me is the very intimate work with um, particular clients, whether that's individuals, families, or, or organizations, but then that larger community context. I mentioned having co-founded the Death Cafe movement in Portland, and we've got over 2,000 people on our email list, remarkably. Um, the community here has just really embraced the opportunity to sit down at a table with strangers and talk about what's on their minds about death. And what's really evolved for me with that, I, I started out just very excited about breaking the taboo and, you know, um, and, and creating space to counter the, the cultural silence around the topic, uh, much as you do. But I've come to believe that uh, how we talk about death is um, even more important than that we talk about death. And I've really come to recognize that a lot of the kind of the new death awareness, um, that it does contain a lot of a lot of death phobia as well. You know, the, um, the, I often quote Stephen Jenkinson, um, I study in his orphan wisdom school in Canada and he talks about turning the wolf into a poodle. So it'll sit on our laps. And so in my community work, uh, through the death talk project, which is the umbrella that sponsors both, uh, death cafes here in Portland and also a monthly movie night and, and different workshops, and uh, I put a newsletter out a couple times a month. I, I encourage um, uh, that kind of thoughtful focus on the sort of language uh, that we use and about whether we're uh, approaching death as one more kind of self-help project with five easy steps to, um, you know, put the plan in place so that then we're cool with it. And um, I've been around enough death to know that we're often not going to be cool with it, um, that, um, that there's a lot to grieve um, about um, uh, the end of someone's days and and the way that those often arrive. And so um, I think that that's part of, uh, again, being a rites of passage activist in this time is is also making space for for grief. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, the the fact is, it seems that we are being much more open about the, having this conversation. But I think what you're pointing out it makes a lot of sense that it. I mean, it it it's still it still is messy and chaotic, and um, we it can have our affairs in order. But that doesn't mean that it won't still be messy and chaotic. Um, the death part and the grief part, all of it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and that, and that um, you know, the sort of focus on uh, my my life, my death, my way. We're very, in our dominant culture here, very focused on um, on the individual, kind of to the exclusion of of the community. And much of getting one's affairs in order does relate to um, the needs of the family and can be community oriented. And so I'm by no means arguing against, in a highly medically interventionist uh, world, that we shouldn't 
have our affairs in order to the extent that we can, but how do we define those affairs? And can we think about ourselves um, as as members of a community and the ways that um, that we approach dying and bereavement and remembrance as being perhaps a little bit less about our own individual choices and preferences and more about the ways that we're part of um, part of a, a shared humanity and a life cycle that involves more than more than humans too. Well, I love what you shared and. I know people can find out more about you who are listening at hollypruittcelebrant.com. Holly Pruitt, thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation, and thanks for all your good work with the podcast. I enjoyed it, too. The word death evokes all sorts of personal feelings, images, and stories. These stories are amazing, and sharing them connects us more fully to life. I'm Ariane Alfont and you have been listening to Death the Podcast. Join us for our next episode in this series. This show is produced and engineered by Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Jill Gross. Our theme music, It Happened, is written by David Milling and is performed by David Milling and Charles Milling. To hear more of David's music, go to his website, davidmilling.com. Our social media director is Jolie Robichaud. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or some other podcast app, if you can take a moment to rate and review us, that helps other people find us. You can find Death the Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram or at deaththepodcast.com. Death the Podcast is a production of INO Broadcasting. Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.